Hello and welcome to Reactive's Beyond the Byline podcast. I am Evie Kiori and this week we are talking about the upcoming Mental Health Awareness Week, how the pandemic and the war in Ukraine are affecting our mental health, the stigma that still exists, how is returning to normality causing anxiety and what actions are taken to offer support to citizens facing mental health problems. We are also talking about the Press Freedom Index published by the Reporters Without Borders, putting in shame some European countries who witnessed press freedom declining more this year. Which countries led the table and which countries plunged? Society is changing rapidly and our mental health has been facing the challenges of the past few years. From the isolation of the COVID-19 pandemic to the war in Ukraine, we are called to build resilience and our mental health keeps declining. Next week is the Mental Health Awareness Week and we wanted to give some more attention on this topic. And to talk about it, I'm joined by Laura Marchetti, Policy Manager at Mental Health Europe and Clara Babeth from Euractive France. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you to you for inviting us. Laura, we touched upon this topic a couple of months ago and now is the right opportunity to return to it. Why is the upcoming Mental Health Awareness Week so important? It has become quite evident that in in the past couple of years, mental health has become quite of a prominent topic of discussion, both at the political level and in everyday life. And this has come with um, more awareness uh, from the side of people on um, how much poor mental health can have a negative impact on the overall, overall well-being of a person and also how much different factors can um, positively or negatively negatively impact a person's mental health. Um, At the same time, there is still stigma and misconception around the topic, and this often um, functions as a barrier for people to seek support and to speak out about um, their their problems. And we see this often if we compare uh, mental health with physical health. We tend to be quite at ease with seeking support to overcome physical health problems, and we Um, are comfortable taking care about our physical health, but the same, unfortunately, cannot be said when it comes to mental health. We often remain skeptical or fearful or even neglectful when it comes to taking care of our own mental health. This is why next week we find it to be quite important um, to break this stigma and to show to people that might not be doing well that they are not alone and that they shouldn't feel judged. So this is also why the overall um, theme of this year is to is a speak up for mental health, to really show people that uh, they shouldn't feel left behind nor, nor misjudged if they are experiencing mental distress, as this can be indeed be a common, um, a common experience for people. So um, they shouldn't be left alone. And what can we expect from this upcoming week? One of the focus for next week is mental health and young people, given that this is um, a group that has been quite um, uh, hit hard in the past two years. And data show that mental health problems among young people have actually doubled uh, during the pandemic. So we really want to focus on this, uh, on younger generation, um, particularly because um, data also show that around half of the problems that adults have um, on 
concerning their mental health, see their own set in adolescence. So um, it's quite important to make sure that um, mental health of young people is not ignored. And because of this, we have partnered with the European Youth Forum and we also received the patronage of the European Parliament. Of course, the younger generation is the hardest hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. However, another group of people that requires attention and feels the repercussions of the health crisis on a mental health level are children. And for a moment, we go to France to talk about a study named NAB that was published this week and shows that children are facing anxiety, behavioral problems, learning difficulties and sometimes even suicidal thoughts. Clara, you have more on this story. What did this study show exactly? Yes. So the study shows that after the pandemic, kids are facing more and more um, mental health problems, uh, even more than uh, adult people. And um, the problem is uh, after, you know, all the lockdowns, school closures, and also the lack of socialization and mask wearing, um, all these measures have affected a lot uh, mental health on children. And how is mental health being affected by the circumstances we're experiencing? Because now, except the pandemic, uh, Europe is also facing a war in its territory. Do you think this has worsened the situation? Well, what you say is actually quite um, uh, factful in a way. There is a solid bulk of evidence that shows that um, events uh, of crisis, such as wars, um, do have a negative impact on the mental health of people that um, experience these events. And this is um, the case both for people that experience war wars uh, directly. So it would be, for instance, the case of people that have to flee their homes and their lives uh, to seek refuge. Um, but it's also the case for people that are indirectly exposed to such events. And this would be the case of people experiencing secondary trauma, but also for people experiencing the socioeconomic consequences of these events. And this is actually very much the case at the moment for the European population as a whole that might not be directly um, impacted by the war in Ukraine, but at the same time is experiencing the consequences of this war um, and um, is becoming concerned by the uncertainties of the war. So this is also why um, any form of response to um, crises or emergencies um, needs to take into account mental health. Um, and practically in, what this means is that um, it is important first to ensure that uh, people fleeing uh, the war can receive adequate mental health support to uh, process what they've been experiencing. Um, but at the same time, it's important to take into account of the mental health aspect when developing um, responses and policies more for the mid to long term um, and to address adequately all the socioeconomic consequences of the war, as these have a strong impact on the mental health of people, both those that have been displaced, of course, but also in this case, the European population as a whole. So there is indeed um, an aspect that a mental health aspect related to the current war that shouldn't be ignored. And um, it is about the, the Ukrainian people that are fleeing, but also it's also about the broader European population. And has anything changed from the last time we spoke? Well, indeed, uh, last time in January, we discussed this, these points. And um, I think in a way, what has changed is the overall context. And now um, in Europe, um, we are dealing with a new situation where we are 
trying to find a new balance in societies that have removed uh, lockdown measures and restrictions. Mm, at the same time, we are dealing with some of these, um, some of the problems related to our well-being that have been um, have been developing in the past two years. So even though society have been reopening, some of us are still uh, dealing with feeling of isolation and loneliness and, and other forms of distress that are related to the pandemic. Um, at the same time, there are new concerns coming from the challenges and, and uncertainties of the current war in, in Ukraine. So the context as, as such might have changed, but the way we see it is that the need to address mental health um, on different level uh, remains a high priority for and should remain a high priorities for policymakers. And what are the initiatives taken by Mental Health Europe? What has been done on an EU level? Well, from, from our side, Mental Health Europe has been working for many years to call for a better coordinated approach and action at the EU level on mental health. And the past years have actually clearly shown the need for it. Um, we were particularly happy to see that uh, a few years ago, during the Finnish presidency in 2019, the Council actually adopted um, and issued Council conclusions specifically asking um, for the European Commission to develop a European mental health strategy. Um, and recently, just last month, the European Parliament actually held a hearing on the topic and many MEPs came forward calling for the need of such strategy or action plan. So um, we are really trying to put all of our forces together and join forces with other institutions to call for, uh, for the development of a European strategy that can better coordinate um, mental health action among EU member states. Um, and we really hope that next week, during the European Mental Health Awareness week, week, this can create a momentum to push for this talk and statement to become more concrete and for the process to develop a European mental health strategy to start uh, soon. Um, and on a final note, I would like to also say that information about specific activities can be found on our website, given that we, are, we have been planning quite a vast uh, number of activities that I won't be listing today, but I would invite um, the audience, if it's interested, to check our website www.mhe-sme.org. Well, thank you, Laura and Clara. You're listening to Euractive's Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on euractive.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge on other fields, you can listen to our Digital Brief podcast and AgriFood Brief podcast. Now, moving on another topic, press freedom is problematic in Europe and Asia, according to the Reporters Without Borders 2022 World Press Freedom Index, published on Tuesday, 3rd of May. And to speak about this, I'm joined by Euractiv's Alice Taylor and Molly Killeen. Molly, starting with you, can you paint the picture for us on how bad is the situation when it comes to the European countries? This year, Europe and Central Asia ranked as having the highest proportion globally of territories that were in a good situation in terms of press freedom, but that was only 13% of the territories and the biggest proportion 
were found to have a problematic press freedom situation. And within the EU, there was quite a disparity between countries. So the top three countries globally were Nordic countries. Um, So there are quite a few EU countries that are doing very well within the rankings. But at the other end, there are also EU countries that are doing quite badly and that have dropped significantly this year. So the biggest, one of the biggest ones is Greece, which has overtaken Bulgaria as the lowest ranked country. Um, And there are also some countries such as Poland and Slovenia, which have remained somewhere in the middle. So it's quite a spread within Europe. And while mentioning the Balkans, Alice, coming to you, We know that the Balkans are traditionally facing issues with uh, press freedom. What's the situation there and what does journalism have to face? Well, the situation in the Western Balkans, as you said, is is pretty complex. Um, generally, press freedom suffers a lot here. Journalists face a lot of problems. Now, one thing I noticed from the report is the main issues throughout all of the countries in the report um, were to do with financing media. So there tends to be sort of private financing coming from media owners who are business people with political interests or things like that. This is one of the main issues, as is threats, that um, threats, be it online through smear campaigns or even verbal um, and physical threats and attacks against journalists are issues as well. Um, Political interference is another problem. Now, Albania was the biggest loser in the region, falling over 20 places to an all-time low. Um, Bosnia and Herzegovina also dropped, but not not as much as Albania. Um, North Macedonia actually uh, registered an increase in its score. So it was actually the only country in the region to increase both in terms of its ranking and its score. And this is fantastic news, at least. So we must be positive about that. Kosovo did very well um, as well, which again is positive. Their ranking increased and their score, you know, disparity was not particularly big. Um, So this is encouraging. And of course, you're mentioning these differences with the previous years, Alice. Do you think that the political situation or leadership affects somehow press freedom in these countries? Like the example of North Macedonia. Do you think the change regarding press freedom follows the political change? Yes, I do. And I think it's the case with Kosovo as well. You know, Kosovo has um, a a new prime minister um, who's managed to stay in power a bit longer than he managed previously. But he has definitely had an impact on the press sort of situation there for the good. I think the same could be said for North Macedonia. Um, But I mean, let's look at Albania. 2013 was the last time we had such a low score, 102. Now. That was when Prime Minister Eddie Rama came into power. And since then, uh, we increased for a couple of years and then have plummeted to an all-time low again. So I think it is directly related to the people that are in power. Again, in Montenegro as well, the report mentioned that um, a lot of the issues with press freedom there were directly related to the fact that the the previous government had been in power for, for decades and were sort of carrying on some autocratic tendencies. Molly, how did they calculate and uh, come up with the positions uh, of each country? The methodology for calculating the rankings changed this year, which is which kind of complicates things in terms of comparing with previous years um, and maybe adds to some of the explanations for, for why certain countries have moved 
in the rankings. The categories by which the rankings are calculated have been changed as of this year. So last year, from 2013 to 2021, there were indicators such as pluralism and independence being used. Um, but as of this year, the indicators have changed somewhat. So now they include things such as political context, economic and sociocultural context, and also legal aspects and the safety of journalists themselves. But I think this, I mean, you know, in terms of countries that have dropped, this is a good thing in a way, because, you know, it 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 provides a much more in-depth look at the issues people are facing, you know, um, although it does perhaps make comparison a, a little bit harder sort of in relative terms. Um, I think it's definitely a more useful tool for people to understand exactly what challenges are being faced by these countries. Mm -hmm. And could we say that now the new figures are more accurate due to the new factors in the methodology? I would say so. You know, I think because I think if you're comparing a country, for example, Albania with Norway, the media environments there are completely different and are faced by completely different challenges. You know, no country is perfect. Um, but I think by having more categories and giving countries scores as per each category can help give a broader overview of the country. I think it is, yeah, I think it is more accurate. Molly, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's, um, they're, quite, they're quite broad. So I think it allows for a lot of nuance in terms of how they're actually being calculated. And as you say, Alice, um, there are very different media landscapes being being taken into account. So I think that that works in, in the favor of um, more accurate calculations. Um, just to add one thing as well, the two countries in the EU that dropped the most dramatically this year um, were Greece and the Netherlands. So the Netherlands has consistently for well over a decade now ranked in the top five or six globally, um, but it dropped to number 28 this year. Um, so quite a dramatic fall. Um, and then Greece as well dropped 38 places. And these were the two countries um, in the EU in which there were journalists assassinated last year which were quite shocking stories and quite big stories at the time. So I think that's probably important to note as well. Molly, what is the reaction to these new facts and figures on an EU level? So within the EU, there's been quite, an, quite a lot of attention paid to press freedom and journalist safety in recent months anyway. So uh, in September, there was the Commission's recommendation on the safety of journalists and just last week, was the release of the anti-slaps directive tackling abusive litigation against journalists. Um, so there's already quite a lot of attention being paid to the position of journalists within the EU. And I think this report and some of the changes that have been seen maybe speak to, uh, to almost confirm what a lot of people have been saying in terms of rising concerns about the state of press freedom within the EU. And Alice, what about the initiatives taken on a national level in the countries you mentioned? 
And Albania, for example, in terms of initiatives, we set up a um, a self-regulatory board. So we now have an official organization, which is comprised of uh, media platforms, uh, journalists, professors, lawyers uh, in the media sector, who uh, we review complaints from the public against media and we enforce, you know, whether it should be changed, an apology should be issued or whether it should be removed. And this is this has been a really positive step forward for for the media sector in Albania. The problem is that we are constantly battling against a government which wants to further control us. Um, Prime Minister Eddie Rama yesterday launched a tirade on Twitter um, saying that basically everything in the report was lies. Journalists have freedom. They're not attacked. They're not attacked by the police. They're not sued, etc. Um, I, I did, in fact, write an article about this to sort of debunk everything he said, sort of proving you know, that the situation is as reporters without borders has um has said but in the region you know these issues are are, are not going to go away overnight you know especially in terms of funding so i think there is a big onus on journalists to unionize to work together to support each other even if they're working for competing platforms and to work hard to improve their ethical standards themselves um therefore this takes some of the um this, if, if they improve their ethical standards themselves, it stops governments being able to say, oh, well, you publish fake news, you do this, you do, you do that, you know? So by being more proactive sort of professionally and demonstrating more solidarity, I think the situation can improve that way. So I think it's also important to mention what I see as a journalist and also someone who works with um, a media freedom organization as well. Um, what I see is more initiatives coming from journalists themselves to organize better and to improve standards sort of for themselves. Um, so, for example, Reporters Without Borders has been involved in a project called the Journalism Trust Initiative, which is a self-assessment that journalists and media portals themselves do, where they um, commit and publish all information regarding funding, transparency, editorial processes, how to file a complaint, they appoint an ombudsman, you know, and all of this is published on the website. So it, this increases trust in from the public and sort of takes the power away from those who might be looking to sort of criticise them. And also in the Western Balkans, um, there's actually, most of the countries now have their own self-regulatory platform, like the one I mentioned for Albania. And the, the boards of these organisations meet periodically as well in the region to discuss ways to improve their own work and also um, to discuss approaches to the shared threats and issues that we're all facing. So I think it's important to say, you know, journalists aren't just sort of sat there going, oh, no, it's terrible. It's getting worse. You know, there are a lot of people actively trying to improve the situation from the bottom up. Well, thank you, Alice and Molly. And our time is up for this week. I am Evikiori, and this was your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. We will be back on your feed next week. Until then, you can send an email at podcast at euroactive.com to let us know what did you like from this episode and what topic would you like to hear more on. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast newsletter and visit euroactive.com for the latest news and listen to us on your favorite podcast app. Thank you very much for listening. 